With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Know It All. The ABCs of Education. A platform of Allison Brown Consulting. ABC where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash knowitall. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. Today we're talking about racial and socioeconomic diversity in today's American schools. My guest is Michael J. Petrilli, Executive Vice President of the Fordham Institute and author of The Diverse Schools Dilemma, A Parent's Guide to Socioeconomically Mixed Public Schools. Hi, Michael. Thank you for being on Know It All. Thanks so much for having me, Allison. So why don't you tell me about the book, The Diverse Schools Dilemma? What inspired you to write it? Sure. Well, this was very much inspired by my own personal situation. Uh, Though I spend my days as an education policy expert, uh, the book was really about what was happening uh, at home and in the community. Um, My wife and I and our two young sons lived in a very diverse community just outside Washington, D.C., Tacoma Park, Maryland. Uh, We had a tiny little starter house, and our family was growing, and we were ready to buy that that house that we expected to live in forever. And so we were looking and trying to decide where that would be. And as with many families that have the, uh, you know, that that are lucky to have these choices, uh, the schools were a big part of that decision. And as we looked at the schools in Tacoma Park, uh, they had uh, a mixed reputation. And some of that reputation, as I uh, would discover as I dug into it, really came down to their socioeconomic diversity. Uh, the schools there served both uh, middle-class, upper-middle-class parents, both both white and African-American and, and some Latino, and also low-income par- uh, low-income families, children from immigrant communities and also lower-income African-Americans. And what I wanted to do in the book was to explore the pros and cons of these diverse schools, particularly socioeconomically diverse schools. Most middle-class, upper-middle-class families will end up moving out of communities like this one and moving to affluent suburbs where the schools are not as diverse, uh, I wanted to understand what were the pros and cons of looking at, at sticking with diverse schools. And writing this book gave me an excuse uh, to do that for, for myself and for others. Mm-hmm. So as a, a, a policy expert, why diverse schools as a policy? Sure. Well, you know, the, the, this is a, a very compelling Issue and of course it goes way back to Brown versus Board of Education. I will say that as a policy expert and, and as a so-called education reformer, I was somewhat skeptical coming in. Uh, there's a sense among the education reform community today 
that trying to integrate our schools was something that a previous generation of reformers had tried and that it had largely failed, uh, that because of white flight, uh, you know, because of the massive resistance to integration, uh, it was something that was just not terribly feasible and that we just need to get on with the business of making all schools as effective as they can be, even if they're predominantly minority or predominantly poor. Uh, so I came in with some skepticism on the diversity issue, but I'll tell you, as I dug into the research and I talked to other scholars and I read up on it and talked to parents, and you know, the, the evidence on, on diverse schools is quite compelling. Uh, that particularly for African-American children and for low-income children, there's quite a lot of strong evidence that diverse schools really are quite beneficial. Uh, now, this might sound like common sense, but you know, there, there's been a big academic debate about this and about whether or not it really matters about the composition of the classroom. And, and some of the studies that go way back, I think, are, are, not, are not so strong by today's standards, but there have been some more recent studies by the likes of Eric Hanyshek, Carolyn Hogsby, some people that are known to be, uh, you know, more on the conservative side of the spectrum, uh, and and very rigorous economists that still conclude that look, uh, the composition of classroom does matter, and African Americans especially uh, will tend to learn more if they are in a classroom that is mixed by race uh, and by class than if they are in a, a classroom that is racially isolated. And so, uh, the the evidence for for minority children and for low-income children is pretty strong, that all else being equal, they will tend to perform better in diverse classrooms. Uh, you know, the evidence for, for white and for middle-class, upper-middle-class children, uh, it, it's a little bit squishier, to be honest. Uh, there's more anecdotal evidence of some of the benefits of, of going to a diverse school. Uh, you know, and, and these are all the, the kinds of things that we would expect, uh, that there are benefits from going to school with people from other cultures and learning about those cultures, learning to be more empathetic uh, if, if you're an upper-middle-class child and learning that, hey, you know, not everybody has all the material uh, things that you have and to learn to, to develop a sense of of what it means um, to struggle and, and to develop friends from across these lines of race and class. Uh, and that these things are a little bit harder to measure and a little bit harder to nail down, but that they're in some ways intangible and, and that they they do tend to result in more uh, progressive attitudes on race and class as people get older if they went to schools like this. So very strong evidence for the academic benefits, particularly for minority and low-income children, uh, and, and some anecdotal evidence that it, it's also certainly beneficial for white and, and middle-class, upper-middle-class students. I should also say, Allison, that I try very hard in the book, and it's it's hard at times to to distinguish between the conversations around race and the conversations around class. You know, in the book, I really focus mostly on the issues of class, the, the challenges of bringing kids together who are both rich and poor in a country where income inequality is growing. Of course, there's a big relationship between race and class in this country still. But, but you know, the, there are some places like in, in metropolitan Washington, D.C., where I live, where, you know, there are there is a growing uh, middle class, even upper middle class of African Americans, and, and I try to make it clear in the book that the, you know this is mostly about the income divides in schools, not so much about race. Mm-hmm. I think you know the the tendency to conflate race and class is because they are so intertwined, but also because the courts have have led us in that direction um, as they've whittled away at uh, affirmative action, uh, especially at the higher education level and. Uh, with the, the Seattle and, and uh, Kentucky decisions, um, 
on affirmative action in K-12. Um, and, you know, I'm a civil rights attorney and used to enforce and monitor school desegregation plans all over the country. And although the Supreme Court recently decided the Fisher versus Texas case and found that diversity remains a compelling interest for universities, mm-hmm. it does feel in a way as though federal policy, and you, you mentioned this, that federal policy and school reform efforts have, have given up on diversity and integration as a goal for K-12 schools. Do you think that is the case? And, and if so, is it something that we should that communities should try to put back on the agenda? You know, I I see a bit of a resurgence in the interest in diversity and integration, and I think some growing awareness among the school reform community that this is an issue that we need to pay attention to. Look, I I think that we need to have a, a, a policy of both and. You know, we need to do all that we can to encourage diversity and integration, and at the same time, we need to do all we can to make high poverty or high minority schools effective. And the reality is, in a lot of our metro areas, because of housing segregation and and those kinds of patterns of where people are living, you know, it's just not feasible to create schools where every school is going to be diverse and is going to be racially or socioeconomically integrated. There's going to be a lot of schools where the the student population is entirely minority or entirely poor. And so we've got to work on making those schools effective as well. But where there are opportunities to create integrated schools, I think we need to take those. And and because, at least in some of our cities, where we see gentrification happening, where we see middle class and upper middle class parents and and some white parents coming back into the cities, uh, we now have, I think, a new opportunity uh, to try for integrated schools again, and we should take it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the benefits of diversity are numerous, as you you listed and as you mentioned in your book, um, including, you know, friendships and resources and uh, even an understanding of justice versus charity and uh, less likelihood of being prejudiced. And as you quote Gary Orfield in your book, as you know, having children who are fluidly multicultural. I love that mm-hmm. <laughs> that, yeah. that terminology. Um, but I think the way that Brown v. Board was written and Brown and its its progeny from the Supreme Court um, cases that followed. Uh, it seems as though diversity was was framed as a, a favor to children of color or children in poverty, um, something that you know uh, black children in particular need in order to be successful. Um, and I think the strategy was more to say we need access to the very same resources in order to make sure that our children are successful. Um, and in your book, you actually talk about diversity in a couple of schools who put true diversity first and and really seem to take advantage of the opportunity, identification as an opportunity to develop real cross-cultural understanding and development of meaningful relationships for the benefit of all of the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, you know, I was really, um, those schools and, and their methods really resonated with me. What Specifically, those schools, I'm talking about Bethesda, Chevy Chase, and E.L. Haynes, and mm-hmm. a couple of the others that you mentioned. What specifically did those schools do to make diversity a priority and work from that as their starting point? Well, you, I, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, in these schools, Bethesda, Chevy Chase High School is a traditional public school just outside D.C., E.L. Haynes is a charter school. Uh, and in both cases, they really do try to leverage the diversity of their student body uh, to make learning, uh, to, to just create 
great learning opportunities for their students. You know, in Bethesda Chevy Chase High School, uh, this is a, a school that's in one of these very ritzy zip codes, and, and you know, but uh, it actually has a quite diverse student body, both racially and socioeconomically. Uh, and it, typical for such schools, it has a big achievement gap, uh, and it works very hard to make sure that uh, lower-income students and minority students take challenging courses, sign up for the many advanced placement or international baccalaureate courses that are available, uh, and uh, and has done so, you know, incredibly aggressively to, to just make sure that the student culture in that school is one where all kids are are expected to achieve, and it's cool to achieve. Uh, and and you know that they're not going to accept anything else, uh, and as a result, they are able to have not just a diverse school but many diverse classrooms as well. And I, I think what you see in these these schools is that they really, they you know, everybody in the school from the principal on down, they really believe in diversity as a way, as as something special and something to be leveraged. You know, and and we, we may talk a little bit later about some of the challenges, particularly when you have kids coming from such different socioeconomic uh, levels and, and achievement levels. But but the belief that diversity is something quite special, uh, rather than just something to be managed, and that it is uh, you know a, a great attribute for the school to have. Mm-hmm. So talk about some of those challenges. What are what are some of the challenges that those schools have seen, and and others yeah. that you've written about? Well, I talk in the book about two main challenges. The first one is what do you do about these huge academic achievement gaps that students tend to come into school with? And the second one is uh, some of the differences that tend to track by race and class around parental preferences. So the the achievement gap one first. This one is is pretty simple uh, to explain but very hard to fix, which is that kids coming into school, especially, say, kindergartners coming into an elementary school, uh, the the high-income students will tend to be way, way far ahead in terms of their preparation for school, and the lower-income kids will tend to be way, way far behind. And you can see that in the data based on vocabulary, based on uh, other measures of school readiness. You know, the the higher-income kids might come into kindergarten already reading, reading at a first or second or third grade level, uh, some of the low-income kids might come in having not not knowing their letters, not even knowing that you know print goes from left to right, et cetera. And so, if you're a school uh, and you are serving students that are both uh, rich and poor, coming in with such vastly different levels of preparation, how do you manage that? Uh, and it's really mm-hmm. hard, you know. And if if you're a kindergarten teacher, uh, probably the the simplest thing to do uh, in this situation is to have some different reading groups where you've got the higher achieving kids in one reading group and lower achieving kids in another reading group. But in a, in a in this kind of diverse school, that's going to largely track by by class. And so now you have segregated your classroom into, you know, the, the in general, the wealthier kids who are in general going to be uh, coming in better prepared and the poorer kids who in general are going to come in further behind. Uh, so that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, and you can understand why. You try to lump everybody together, though. How on earth do you manage these huge differences? What do you teach? Do you teach to the middle and have you know half the kids way, half the kids bored and the other half overwhelmed? So, so these issues, um, in terms of how do you deal with the different levels that kids are coming into school with, is is tough. And and look, every public school has to deal with this to some degree. But in schools that are more homogeneous, uh, the gaps just are not as large uh, as they are in schools with a lot of socioeconomic diversity. 
you know, mm-hmm. the, the other aspect that I talk about is that uh, there are some patterns based on race and class in terms of parental preferences. You know, then these are somewhat stereotypes, but there's some truth to them, which is that African-American parents tend to be somewhat more traditional uh, in their uh, in, in what they want to see from a school, you know, more traditional discipline, back to basics, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, many affluent parents, especially affluent white parents, are more attracted to a more, quote, progressive style of education that might have more hands-on learning, uh, that might have more casual relationships between students and teachers. And so if you bring, you know, these different groups together under one roof, uh, you know, how traditional do you make the school? How progressive do you make the school? How do you manage those different parental preferences? Particularly if you're a traditional public school, a neighborhood school, uh, you know, how, how do you decide? What's the culture of the school going to be? You know, do you... You call the teachers by their first name, or is everybody Mr. and Mrs.? You know, it's got to be one way or the other. Do you have school uniforms or not? Uh, and uh, and so managing some of those different expectations from parents is another challenge. Mm-hmm. You, in the book, mention this benign paternalism, um, that, that schools like KIPP and other academies who... Um, who situate themselves in low-income neighborhoods um, with primarily students or, you know, all students of color, um, Mm -hmm. black and brown children. Is there room for, and and I don't know that there can be a a benign paternalism. I don't know that there, I don't know um, about Mm -hmm. that as a concept, but, is there room, do you think, for a hybrid or even the option of mm-hmm. a progressive education in communities that are under-resourced? Uh, I, I do think that it is possible to make a more progressive educational approach work in high-poverty neighborhoods. And there are a couple of examples, and I talk about one such book, uh, one such example in the book, the uh, Capital City Charter School in D.C. Um, but th- those are those are rare exceptions. Uh, for the most part, the high-achieving schools that we read about uh, in the inner city tend to be fairly traditional. Uh, they're kind of sort of traditional public schools on steroids uh, that are just super driven uh, to help kids catch up and then to uh, prepare them for college and on. Uh, and they tend to have this more traditional approach. That, you know, what I talk about in the book, this idea of, of benign paternalism, uh, this is the notion that if you are trying to help low-income students uh, get ready for college, they are going to need to know a lot more than just their academics in order to succeed. They're going to have to learn how to survive in college campuses that are, are you know, have this sort of dominant middle-class culture and what you might in some kind of degree call a white culture. And so if you have kids who are coming from communities of color, low-income communities, uh, you know, they're going to need to learn how to survive in those in those settings. And so the schools end up teaching students uh, some things that might just be assumed in, in middle-class, upper-middle-class communities. What I say in the book is that, look, you know, there, there's some evidence that this kind of stuff is important and it helps. But if you're in a diverse school where, again, you've got both affluent kids and low-income kids, you know, some of these things that you try to do this in, in those diverse schools, the affluent parents aren't going to like it. You know, they're going to say, why, you know, hey, Mike, you know, why are you teaching, spending time teaching my child how to, you know, do a proper handshake or look somebody in the eye or uh, track, you know, track them when they're speaking to them? You know, this this feels strange to me or, you know, my kids don't need this. 
Um, and yet it is something that has been found to be important, uh, particularly for low-income kids who may not otherwise learn these essential skills. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I am um, torn, I think, when it comes to putting diverse schools back on the agenda as, you know, a, a top priority, um, especially when I look at Brown versus Board and, and our attempts at desegregation, I think, um, and you cite to Amy Stewart-Wells, and, you know, she makes the point very well, I think, that we've put a lot on schools and we are trying to get schools to be the model for societal integration. And it hasn't worked, honestly. It's too much, I think, to try to put on schools alone. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think we do put an awful lot on our schools, and absolutely. And I understand the frustration of educators who say, look, uh, you know, we have all these problems in society, including, you know, very segregated uh, communities and segregated patterns of housing, uh, and you expect us to fix it. Uh, and, and you know, schools are one of the few institutions we have left where we expect to be able to bring communities together across these lines of race and class. I mean, many of us spend our days... Uh, you know, where, where maybe our, our workplaces might have some of that diversity, maybe, uh, but otherwise uh, many Americans go about their lives and, and there's not um, much of that. And yet here we are with schools trying to figure out how to bring communities together. Look, I, I think it takes an enormous amount of leadership. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. I in, in the book I talk about how charter schools have some advantages here. You know, charter schools are schools of choice. They can locate themselves strategically in places where they can draw on diverse communities, but they can also make sure that they have an educational mission that is appealing to people across these different lines. And they can have very strong leaders, you know, who can play this role, almost like a a mayor of a small town, to to know, to have the the small p political acumen to bring different communities together to manage some of these tensions that are going to arise. I think it's hard in, within a, a sort of bureaucratic, traditional public school system um, to, to make that work. You certainly it certainly happens, and you've got some great principals who are able to manage it. But but man, it's tough. It's absolutely tough. Yeah. But I don't know what the options are. I mean, it's uh, yeah. you know it, it we haven't made a ton of progress on uh, on other efforts to make our cities more diverse. Um, though again, that's that's starting to change in this trend towards gentrification is creating some opportunities if we manage it right um, and uh, try to manage and and maintain the diversity that is starting to appear in some of our cities. Mm -hmm. And I think we we seem to be at a very critical juncture in uh, what can be progress in terms of certainly racial diversity in this country um, with, you know, the Trayvon Martin verdict and um, Darius Simmons, who was killed in Milwaukee, um, the, the trial of his um, killer ended up in a, a guilty verdict recently, and Jordan Davis, who was 17 and, and was killed in Florida, um, his killer will be put to trial in um, September. You know, it just feels like we're at a very critical point in terms of where we can go with race in this country. And um, I'm a graduate of Howard University, so, um, you know, certainly see the benefits of where there are adequate resources uh, of of a somewhat homogeneous population of students, um, you know, coming together for that purpose, to, you know, for 
um, you know, cultural empowerment and, um, you know, exploring that diaspora. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, <laughs> you know, I, I my children are in a very, very diverse school, and I see, I can see every day the benefits of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I am so appreciative of it, and my husband and I chose that school because of its diversity. So I understand very well this dilemma of, of diverse mm-hmm. schools. Um, you know, and, and so how did you, as you were grappling with this and dealing with the data, um, how did you, I know that you ended up at a, a school that wasn't as diverse as you were seeking, but, but how did you kind of make that personal journey um, to, to deal with that dilemma? Yeah. No, well, so so I struggled with this mightily, uh, and in the end, it's true, I, and I feel a lot of guilt about this, that we sold out and we moved to Bethesda, <laughs> Maryland, uh, one of these classic, uh, not diverse uh, suburbs. Uh, and so in many ways, we took the path that, that most uh, middle class, number of middle class families take, which is that they move to, to uh, homogeneous suburbs. Uh, and, you know, you know, when we looked at the schools in Tacoma Park that we were considering, uh, you know, I, I just did not feel comfortable that these schools were going to manage these challenges well. You know, it felt like there was an awful lot of test prep. There was a, a sense, you know, that the schools really, uh, you know, did not feel warm and inviting, um, and that they, uh, you know, were were not as progressive, say, as my wife and I were interested in seeing. In the schools on the other side of the county, uh, they had fewer challenges to deal with. They didn't need to worry so much about getting the kids to pass the test because, you know, the kids were going to pass the test even if they uh, did yoga all day long uh, because of, you know, the, the families that they were coming from. And so there was more a sense that, you know, there was more time for the art and the music and, and the other things. And so uh, so in the end, we ended up moving. And it wasn't just about the schools. It was, you know, we ended up finding a great house, and we liked a lot of the things about the neighborhood, and it was close to the river and all the rest that goes with it. But um, but in the end, we, we just uh, – I, I, I couldn't commit uh, to the diverse schools in Tacoma Park, and, and I still wrestle with it and, and wonder if we made the right decision. I think in the end, look, uh, you know, I think our, our boys would have done fine anywhere um, and uh, would have gotten a lot out of having that experience. But in the end, we, we chose to to go the other way. Mm-hmm. So is there is there a way, do you think, to measure? We certainly, I think, um, we are in the process of figuring out how to test and how to measure academic ability. And, um, you know, there are tests. That are being administered, you know, regularly, and uh, that are being that are actually in development as we speak. Um, but how can we measure the the social benefits that you reference? That that we have these anecdotal stories from people who have had great experiences in diverse settings. But how do we measure that in the long run? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, you know, I came across some research when I was doing you know le- learning about all this for the book you know and and what the research would show that there were some measures of racial tolerance versus prejudice and you can see that that people who grew up going to schools that were more diverse were less likely to be prejudiced uh, and you know were more self-aware about the biases that they may have and so you know i i think that's important and and you know the good news here is that we we do have a generation of young people of young parents who have been raised uh, in a 
you know, in a culture that has been stressing the importance of diversity, and especially, you know, going to colleges where diversity was a big, uh, you know, was something that was stressed and the benefits thereof. And so, you know, look, I think that you have a lot of people who are committed to this notion of diversity or at least open to it. Um, and and it is it is something that is still not terribly um, you know is not measured terribly well the benefits of of diversity except you know for the academic benefits that certainly clearly accrue to the lower income students and to minority students. Mm-hmm. So it it sounds to me as though your audience you were really speaking to similarly situated folks. Um, you were talking to white middle class parents who are dealing with this dilemma of mm-hmm. how and whether and how to find diverse schools. But are there takeaways for other people also? Yeah, you know, and I, I really I debated this when I was writing it about whether to do a special chapter for kind of middle class, upper middle class, African American families and Latino families because I, it, it seemed to me as I talked to some some parents and some educators that they face all these same issues and then some. You know, it's kind of uh, just just exact. You know that that uh, for for middle class, upper middle class African American families, for example, talked to quite a few who said, you know, they they said it really felt like a high stakes decision to them. Uh, that if they mm-hmm. sent their child to a school that had a lot of socioeconomic diversity, especially, that they were very worried about their children, uh, you know, falling in with the wrong crowd, uh, and that you know look, that the stakes are very high. That we look at the numbers, we see how poorly so many, particularly African American boys, are doing, uh, and they, you know, so you would find, you know, I'd talk to these families and talk to educators where, you know, the families would, would at great expense decide to make the sacrifices to send their kids to private schools, for example, some of which were diverse, some of which not as much, uh, but, you know, because they did not want to take the risk of sending uh, their children to um, more socioeconomically diverse public schools, um, you know, and, and so there was that sense that, look, uh, you know, they uh, they were w- very worried about whether or not their kids, and especially their boys, were going to make it through the, the public school system and, and do okay. And uh, and so I think these these issues that are certainly fraught for all parents are even more so uh, for minority parents. I, I will say that you know clearly the book is for parents that have choices, you know, and and uh, still in today in in this country that mostly means parents who are affluent enough to move to wealthier communities if they decide that the schools where they live currently aren't good enough. Uh, you know, we, mm-hmm. we now in some cities, such as Washington D.C., increasingly provide options for lower-income parents through charter schools or magnet schools or things like that. But but still, the dominant form of school choice in America today is is really residential choice. Uh, it's uh, deciding that you don't like the local schools and that you're going to move, and that is something mm-hmm. that uh, takes a degree of affluence to be able to pull off. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, I, I've in my work and in you know just talking to my my friends, um, mm-hmm. you know, my husband and I are um, middle class black folks who live in mm-hmm. Washington D.C. and you know in our circles, education is a constant theme of discussion. Mm-hmm. And where are we going to send our children? You know what is going to be best for them? And I. I I feel like there's a level of cynicism um among parents and and this is among you know parents of many different backgrounds 
Um, Dean Leslie Finwick from Howard University wrote a piece in the Washington Post just a few months ago um, where she noted that black parents seem to have a very high level of frustration with um, the quality of the schools that their children attend. Mm -hmm. Did you at all experience that cynicism or see it in your conversations with with parents, with black parents or Latino parents or white parents as you were interviewing them? Yeah, no, that, that's fascinating. And, and again, I would say that I, I did come across some of that um, to the degree that, that I talked to African-American parents and educators, that, that again, these decisions were so much more fraught. Um, I mean, you would certainly, I mean, all parents stress out about this stuff, right? You know, Especially when our kids are about to enter school and we're making these decisions when they're three and four and five, and then again, maybe when they're going into high school. And uh, and we're obsessed with it, and of course, because we know it's such an important decision, you know. Um, and uh, and but but you know, I was also nervous about writing too much about it because look, I try to be clear in the book. I am, you know, I'm a white guy, uh, you know, and I'm uh, upper middle class, and so that's my perspective. And I I didn't uh, I didn't want to try to represent uh, the views of people, um, you know, that and, and do so in, in some kind of way that didn't feel authentic. So, but I, I, you know, look, it's, it's a, it, this is a huge issue. And when th- these challenges, particularly in these, in these socioeconomically diverse schools, they are real. You know, how do you manage this academic diversity? How do you manage the culture? How do you make sure that, uh, you know, the culture of these schools is one where doing well in school and learning uh, and, you know, respecting the teacher, that all that kind of stuff is, is, is encouraged and is okay. It doesn't get you labeled as the geek and the nerd. You know, this is hard stuff. And moving to the suburbs um, is, is a rational choice for a lot of people and, and, and you know, certainly for a lot of African-American families uh, because, uh, you know, it just feels like the safer choice and it feels like less of a struggle than, than you might face uh, on a day-to-day basis in schools that are trying to serve a very diverse student body socioeconomically. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, um, you know, educational mission, strong leaders, mm-hmm. some of the qualities and, and things that schools can look to put in place if they want to try to have a diverse population of students. What are some other things that schools can do if, if you know, if we have educators who are listening and they really want to pursue diversity as a goal, what are some things that they can do? That's a great question. And, you know, there's some very good books out there by some educators on this topic. Um, I don't want to claim to be an expert in sort of how how to make this work within a school. I think, look, I think, that first of all, if what we see happening in some of our cities is that we have some schools that have for now many decades been high poverty, high minority schools, but they are in neighborhoods that are starting to gentrify. And there's this big question about whether they are going to be welcoming to these newcomers. Uh, and these are these are very tense situations. Uh, there are many educators, particularly black educators, who are worried about this, that if the white kids who are now living in these neighborhoods start coming into the school, uh, their parents are going to be very uh, pushy in a certain way, and they're going to end up taking resources away from the African-American kids. 
And there's some reason to be worried about that, you know, that the parents are going to say, you know, I, I'm not interested in that much in this more remedial approach or this more back-to-basics approach. That may be very much helping the minority kids. What I want is more art, more music. And while that's fine and everybody could benefit from that, uh, the, the worry is that there's going to be some real conflict around whose needs are going to be a priority. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you know, bringing in more affluent kids into the school can have all kinds of benefits, and the research is clear on that too. So, you know, how do schools manage this and find a way to be welcoming uh, to the newcomers and to manage the change that's inevitably going to happen? Uh, but that change that could end up bringing more resources to the school um, and uh, and more vibrancy to the school, I think that's a big question. Um, you know, in some of the stories I tell in the school, you, you know, you go go to a PTA meeting and try to understand how the different parent groups are getting along. You know, you have this dynamic in some of these gentrifying schools where the the affluent parents come in and they're very excited and they're going to organize the PTA and they're going to put on big fundraisers. And lo and behold, they're putting on fundraisers that many parents can't afford to go to. You know, because they're too expensive, mm-hmm. and they have to learn to say, "Hey, wait a minute, we've got to." Make sure that any community event is actually accessible uh, by everybody in the community, and and so you know here you see people trying to again manage uh, these huge divisions in our society across lines of race and class, and and you know this is it's the town square. It's one of the few places where it's happening in our society. Mhm, mhm. So I, I think that that is a, a fascinating. Um, issues, you know, especially newly gentrified neighborhoods and their schools, um, you know, and you really explore this a lot in the book. And I think there certainly is um, the the mindset around this issue has certainly contributed to um, black parents that, that I've spoken with who've said, no, I don't you know, diversity doesn't need to be a priority. We've been there, done that. It didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and part of that, I think, comes from, and you touch on this, you know, the, the tendency of educators and others to want to try to woo white parents and to mm-hmm. want to try to, you know, woo money into the schools and to do so at, at the expense of, of, you know, very rich cultural um, practices that are already there at the school, um, mm-hmm. very, you know, very rich values that are already there at the school. Um, and, you know, you you mentioned Michelle Ree and her uh, wooing of white parents into um, one of the middle schools in, in D.C., which was at that time predominantly black. Um, you know, how how do you see that? that mindset playing into diversity and discussions about diversity in schools. Yeah, no, I think that it's, uh, I mean, gosh, these things are so fraught. This stuff can be so hard. I mean, I, and I think that, uh, you know, this is the, this classic conundrum. You've got these wealthier parents moving into the city, and, you know, they feel like they're doing a good thing by considering these schools that are, you know, mostly high high minority, high poverty schools that they they're going to help turn around. Well, the the parents that are already there may not want their schools turned around, uh, or you know they think that they're doing quite a few things right. Uh, Michelle Reed did get in trouble for some statements that certainly made it sound like she was trying to push out the black parents and bring in the white parents at some of these schools, and uh, you know that's a problem. 
And it's true that in a place like Washington, D.C., some of the changes happening in the schools are going to result in black kids getting pushed out over time and not having the same choices. Schools that uh, parents were using, that they might live in one neighborhood and they were using schools in another. Well, once those fill up with neighborhood kids, that's no longer an option. So, uh, again, these are very difficult issues to manage, uh, and they can bring a whole lot of tension and a whole lot of conflict along with them. Uh, And and you know it's it's easy just to say hey let let's try to do what's best for the kids and let's make it happen that's fine but the truth is there you know different kinds of different students do have different needs and there's going to be real conflict here if you have a group of students coming in way behind they're going to need a whole lot of intensive help to catch up uh and if you have other students coming in way ahead you know their parents are going to want them to get a certain kind of challenge and enrichment and in a system where there are scarce resources to go around, deciding where you put the money, the extra money, you know, it's a big, big question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it certainly does feel like a minefield, in a, a minefield. <clears throat> and I feel like you have, you know, really uh, touched on very difficult topics in your book, and you have presented data and information that will really, I think should be initiating some really valuable conversations. So I'm appreciative of your work. I'm appreciative of your your time this evening, and and thank you for having this conversation with me. Um, Do you have any parting thoughts for our audience? Uh, Well, I really appreciate the chance to to come on the show, Allison. I do hope people will check out the book, which is The Diverse Schools Dilemma, and they can find that on Amazon in print or as an ebook. Uh, and I hope folks will will check that out. And I would love to hear from people what they think. Great. Michael Petrilli is the Executive Vice President at the Fordham Institute. The website is www.edexcellence.net. That's ebexcellence.net. Thank you very much. You are now certified know-it-alls about diverse <laughs> schools and the diverse schools dilemma. You can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter, find ABC on Facebook, and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.